Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. to episode number 134 of the Energetic Radio Podcast, and today I'm joined by Coach Reed Maltby. Now, for those who haven't heard of Reed, he is an outstanding, and some regard as one of the best coaches in the world, and I don't say that lightly, and you'll get a feel of that today with everything we speak about. Now, Reed has got over 30 years of experience, not only in coaching, but also educating. He's got a master's degree in both sports psychology and early education, He's been played soccer at the highest level as well as coaching it. And now he basically travels the world coaching coaches on not only improving their craft, being better people, building relationships, engagement, all of these things through his presentations, his coaching, his online think tank that he's created, Realm Coaches, which is a mentorship. As well as that, he shares a wealth of knowledge from his TED Talk and everything he's done along his journey. So guys, sit back. This is uh, this episode will blow your mind, not only for coaches, but also just general parents, educators, people in business, anybody, because the life lessons that Reed talks about today, we can all implement. So guys, sit back, episode number 134. This is Reed and it is amazing. podcast i'm so excited i'm joined by coach reed Maltby. reed how are you buddy i'm doing very well excited to chat with everybody in australia and mate now i'm excited to share everything you're doing now for my audience that uh may not have come across your work or your upbringing or everything you're doing just want to paint a picture so people know the real reed Sure. So uh, I was your prototypical multi-sport athlete growing up here in the U.S., uh, played pretty much everything under the sun. If it rolled or I could find a way to hit it, I turned it into a game. Uh, I quit pretty much every sport around age 14, 15 that I'd been playing. I was one of those kids. I went from practice to practice to practice. I mean, I was two and three sports a season, probably too much, but I loved it so much. Uh, but in, when I was about 14, 15, I quit everything for soccer, which in hindsight, my dad says was not my best sport, but it was the one I was most passionate about. I followed that soccer career up and through college. But at the same time, my my mentor coach got me into coaching about age 16. He said, I want to give you a gift and, I, and you have a gift then you'll share with the world and it'll change your life. So he got me into coaching. And uh, at one point in time, I made the decision, you know what? I think I want to be a coach instead of a player from here forward. So I went on, got a master's in sports psychology and began that coaching career. Uh, I've been coaching ever since uh, a few years back, I went back and got a master's in early childhood education and development, which has really changed everything for me. So I, I lean on the sports psych degree and I lean on the childhood development degree. Uh, and my primary sports have always, has always been soccer, but in probably the last four or five years, I'll work with pretty much any sport. As you saw with our think tank, we had 24 different sports involved, uh, and that's uh, and my goal is to help inspire coaches because you know we always talk about how we influence our children, but who's influencing those who are influencing the children? And I'm hoping I'm putting a positive influence on the coaches I work with. Mate, and you definitely are, Reed. Now I, I just want to go back to that. So at age 16, because I know coaching is something that I don't know. Particularly, uh, you play a sport, then when you can't play anymore, uh, you know, you then look okay. I'll go into coaching. I'll give a little bit back. What? So at age 16, did you just completely give up, or were you coaching as well as playing? How'd that work? 
I was coaching as well as playing, and it was it actually worked out very well. I saw the game differently once I saw it through the eyes of a coach, and uh, and so it changed the way I played the game, and more importantly, it also altered the way I interacted with other players and with coaches themselves because I started to understand that dynamic that was there, uh, peeling back to the sideline. When I was in college, I was actually playing for our, our uh, for you know playing for our university team at the same time as coaching the uh, the women's club team at that college. And that was really interesting because I was taking things that I was learning on the field at, at division one soccer and working with these female athletes and, and sort of transferring it over. But yeah, I played all the way up through. I, I, it wasn't until I got into my early twenties that I, I really hung it up. And then I went back to it and played a little bit of semi-pro in Utah for a while. Um, but it was an interesting dichotomy to be able to do both at the same time. Yeah, that's it's really fascinating because um, it's not something you really hear about these days. Because particularly coaching, it's such a uh, high uh, time-consuming position. You know that it as the coaching is probably the easy part. It's the back-end work. It's the hours after, before training, all this stuff. So, how did you manage doing both? Playing obviously at such a high level, but then also coaching at a high level too. So, in the beginning, I was very good at finding those people who whose passion was the administrative side or who, who had a, a vested interest, like a parent who was coaching. And I, we just forge a relationship where I'd say, okay, I'll do everything on the field. If you'll help me do all of the other difficult stuff that I'm not capable of doing, cause I'm only 17 or 18 years old. Yeah. And so a lot of times I had these parents who were my head coach and I was the assistant or I was head and they were assistant, but they pretty much ran all of the back end stuff of the team. And I just, I showed up for practices and I showed up for games, which still is a lot of, time commitment. It taught me very early on time management and, and working in productivity spurts. And to this day, I still do it. When I find that spurt of energy or, or creative spark, I run with it until I, until it, you know, it flames out and then I take a break. And that's the same thing I did then is a, I would hit a creative spark with my schoolwork and I'd run for, run with it for a bit. And then when I needed a break from it, I'd, I'd shift over and what do I need to do for prepping for tonight, this weekend's tournament or something like that. So so, mate, you were you were getting probably thirty-two hours out of a twenty-four hour day. <laughs> Trying my best, and you know, <laughs> and you know what it is like a coach. You, you get downtime between games at tournaments to study, or, or you know, on road trips you have time at back at the hotel and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I quit playing completely that I really became truly absorbed in the art and science of coaching. But because I'd been juggling the two all those years. It's still, I still got geeked out about the off-field stuff. Like, what can I learn next? What other sport can I watch? What coaches can I watch? What other industries can I pull into this experience? And so I became a real student of the game just away from the game itself. That's, that's so fascinating. You can tell by not only that, but your passion, mate, that you are living and breathing that. Now, I just want to go back to the, what you mentioned about, obviously, getting not not – passing roles around but relationships and um getting skills of other people to work together and collaborating and so forth to not only share the load but provide the best possible quality of coaching for the students athletes you're working with and i suppose anybody at grassroots professional that um you know creating those bonds and working as a team is crucial so how would you recommend going about forging those relationships or picking the right people well, mine was out of necessity because the amygdala was activated pretty early being 16 and coaching, you know, eight and nine year olds. You, you're thinking, wow, these parents are 
are looking at me and thinking, this kid's not even old enough to, he's barely old enough to drive. What's he doing coaching my son? So, you know, that kid, that kid over there, he could be my son. So, so I, I got really good at finding those people who brought me credibility or brought a skill set that allowed me to, to sort of have that, that uh, professionalism to the field. And so, uh, it was looking for skills I didn't have that I knew that I would need. And then, and then as a, as a new coach, always look at the people around you. And instead of trying to find those, you squeeze out the negatives. Cause that's what we typically do is we look at the negatives and we say, yeah. that's going to be a crazy parent and that's going to be an overprotective parent. And that's going to be a lawnmower parent. We, we've got to stop with the negatives. It's a lot of finger pointing in the last few years about who's doing things wrong. And instead look at your sphere of people around you and say, what do you bring to the table that if you and I collaborated, we could really emphasize and bring our, our group to a whole new level? So, for instance, you know, my coaches, my assistant coaches were usually the people who were really good at the admin side, really good at parent communication and and brought you know some other skill to the table that maybe is like – I had one one year who was just a phenomenal statistician, and so he brought a whole new level level of measurement, athlete measurement to the to the uh, the field for me, and it was always just trying to leverage those people. And instead of shoving them away, I was trying to bring them in and say, "Listen, if you leverage your talent and I leverage mine, we're that much better." And the thing is, is I I, I had problems. We all have problems. We all we're all going to have those bumps. It's part of the process. Just like the kids are struggling and. And, and, and failing and trying new ways, we as, as coaches and parents are going to have those issues too. But they were always minimized when we realized that somebody was busy doing something they were really good at. For instance, if I had a parent that was just great at taking pictures, that was my team photographer. And that was a skill I didn't have, nor I could employ during games. But what a way to be able to capture the season for the kids and the memories. Or if I had a videographer, what a way to give us an ability for our athletes to sit down and watch themselves perform so we can we can talk about what they look like and when they get to see themselves, talk about accountability. And that parent was so engaged in that, they didn't want to do any of the other stuff. They didn't have time to do any of the other stuff. So that's, that's my advice is look at the people around you. What skills do they bring to, ta- to the table? Activate those skills because it makes you better as a coach and it engages them in such positive ways. Everybody wins. That's, I think that's so powerful and exactly what you said that I think just not only in coaching but in life we're too quick to focus on people's negatives and flaws instead of thinking all right what positives do they bring to the table and I'm just guessing there by giving these parents or figuring out what they're good at or what their passion is giving them a purpose and making them engaged that you wouldn't have had issues with parents because um, instead of focusing on the negatives or thinking about the self-talk you didn't allow them to do that because they had a purpose and they were engaged is that sort of the method that you went with? It was. And, and like I said, it was in the beginning, it was just by accident because it was a survival mechanism. But by the end of my coaching career here, I'm starting to realize how powerful it was to leverage those the, 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 the skills that they had. And I did. I, we all have our problems, but our problems were usually regulated by the parents themselves. I'd have a parent who would come new to a team and who'd be, you know, maybe overstepping his or her bounds or, or being a little over aggressive on the sidelines or whatever it was. And the other parents would say, hey, that's that's not how we do it. That's not how our team is, you know, and and or even the kids, the kids were empowered because they knew what the dynamic was between them. Because I always told everybody, listen, a culture isn't the kids and I. A culture is anybody who has a touch point with this group, who has an opportunity to spark or spoil what we're creating here. So if you ignore things like parents and referees and club administrators and other stuff, they're going to have an impact on your culture. And if you're not able to 
to be, be proactive about working with that group, they're going to have a negative that negative impact. But if you're saying to the kids, hey, the parents are part of our culture, so we need to find positive ways to engage with them, and you're empowering your kids, it's amazing how many kids would say would turn to their parent and say, hey, hey you know, dad, just let us play. Yeah. When, when a dad's yelling or something like that, they, they have that confidence because they know that I have that relationship with the parents and they know that they have that relationship with me and they know they have that relationship with the parents. And so it's, uh, it, 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 I had my problems, but a lot of times it ended up ironing itself out or, and this is the other piece of advice to young coaches. It was, there was always an honesty level and a transparency. There was a problem between a parent and I, then we were going to have a conversation and we would talk only about the parent or the child and not anybody else's kid or anything like that. But we talk in facts and we'd be very honest and then we try to work through it. So I always validated how they felt. Didn't mean they were right or I was right, but I always validated how the parents felt and then, okay, but how do we move forward? Because no matter what we do, we're still going to be on these two sidelines at these games. And what matters most is Johnny on the field. Oh, Ray, what you just said there, mate, should be the, the coaching manual, the blurb for any new coach, because what you've essentially done is not only are you equipping the players on the field, giving them the right skills and lifelong skills too that they'll be able to take into the business world or whatever they're doing afterwards about how to deal with people, but you're also creating a team of the parents and supporters, aren't you? Very much so. And they and they became huge supporters in the process because they would they would buy into what we were doing. And so they began reinforcing the culture. And it was they weren't having conversations on the way to games, getting the kids all hyped up. Well, you need to do this today and you need to do that. <laughs> like already already setting the virus in the software of the brain. Right. Instead, they were just like, you know, have fun today. And I love watching you, you know, and whatever that, you know, they, so they were having these very they were already easing the kids into it. And then they were reinforcing everything we talked about. What'd you talk about at practice tonight? Because coach in an email early in the week saying something about you'll hear the term find feet explain this to me and so what happened is these these kitchen counter conversations and these car ride conversations instead of them being an us versus them or what their issues were with coach or other kids it became a tell me about your sporting experience and put the kids right at the center of everything so it, it, it was it, i had one team that we had a long-term goal a long-term goal because i'm not I, i'm not big on outcomes but we had a long-term goal to win a state cup and there wasn't a dry eye in the place when we when we awarded the medals to the boys when they finally won that state cup after 18 months of work because the parents knew they were part of this. The parents knew that this wasn't something – this was the boys' work, but they knew they, they had played this integral role in what these boys had accomplished. And it was a memory that they would never – that could never be taken away. So it was pretty powerful. That's And do you know what? That's a memory that – probably they will have the rest of their lives because I know particularly these days with technology and things like that, there's a bit of a divide that um, parents don't know how to communicate with their kids. Kids don't can't relate to their parents because they're so old and ancient, whereas you can use sport like you've just done there to foster not only memories and relationships but a bond that will last for the rest of their lives. Very much so, and, and and I discovered it myself because uh, I, I accidentally drove my son from soccer. I, I wasn't the only reason, but as a young parent and still trying to learn the power of human language, uh, being a language geek myself, this was after my TED, TED talk actually on the power of a coach's words. I would always ask my son if I didn't see his game because I was at his brother's or I was at another game with our club or something because I was executive director at the time, so I was extremely busy. I would always ask him, did you score? Because I was a goal scorer, and so that was my way to bond is, you know, talk about the goals we've scored and watch game, <laughs> EPL games. 
and I didn't realize that because of the fish stories that we told about my goals, you know, I scored from 3000 yards away uphill in the snow barefoot, <laughs> you know, with, with three defenders on my back and a dragon <laughs> flying it. Um, because we, those stories were so abundant and he met my mentor. My mentor was a coach for his for a short period of time. So he heard the stories from my mentor when I was 16 and in my prime, <laughs> he was trying to live up to this. And when he wasn't scoring goals, he went a whole year without scoring. He thought that he was a disappointment to me. And he asked me that. He says, Dad, am I a disappointment? Because I don't score goals like you. And I realized that I had set that because I was the one that was was putting the emphasis on, did you score? Oh, that's okay. You'll get it next time. And so here he is thinking, and you know, does he not love me as much if I don't score? Or I, do I not measure up if I don't score? Or do I not matter as an athlete? Where's my significance? What's my why? And so – he left the game shortly after asking me that question. And I told him, I said, son, this is your path. I'm so sorry. I just was trying to bond. But this is your path. You have to choose the path you want to choose. I've got mine, and I will walk with you on whatever path you take. But please don't ever think I'm dragging you down or a path or I'm judging you by the choices you make. So he left it. But the cool bond, the memories, like you said, this lifetime and this bond over sport is years later, my son wants to try out for the freshman soccer team. And he comes to me and he says, will you train me? He said, I'd want nothing more to be trained by my own dad to try out for the team. Wow. And it was such a powerful moment because I realized that because we had corrected that course and I, and I did my very best to fix what I had set up there with the Digi Score thing, that sport was still this bonding, this thread between us that kept us bonded as father and son. And it was and now he's he picked volleyball and he's playing volleyball and he asks me to hit with him all the time and I I know nothing about volleyball <laughs> so <laughs> it's really cool because now he's teaching me you know yeah and that's I think that's that's so powerful and really it doesn't matter at the end of the day what sport or anything they're doing as long as as long as kids are moving they're happy and they're choosing their own path but I think exactly what you mentioned about um, the power of our words and I know um, that's your TED talk so and and I've absolutely loved this read and I've watched this a couple of times recently and previously um do you want to talk us about that obviously the echoes beyond the game that's a talking point but the way you start this off now i love ted talks i've watched so many of them and i'd love to do one one day i've never seen a start like the way you started yours well uh yeah so i had read the book talk like ted by carmine gallo and in it, he basically creates a blueprint for how to he, – he had watched all the world's best TED Talks, and he created a blueprint for how to give the perfect TED Talk based on these, these uh, intangible uh, and, uh, and th- these themes and all the other TED Talks, things that they did. And he'd tell great stories and you know, do things to engage the audience, et cetera. But one of the things he kept coming back to was how the great TED Talks always just – grabbed the audience by the shirt collar and pulled them up out of their seats <laughs> in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. And so he tells the story of like, you know, he tells the story of, of, you know, people bringing, somebody brought a spine out on stage, you know, a brain and brain stem and brain and brain stem and everything like that. And, and, uh, Bill Gates released, uh, mosquitoes into the audience. He opened the jar and releases these mosquitoes. And while he's, while they're flying around, he starts telling how many people are dying from malaria that's transferred by mosquitoes in Africa. And he's talking about the, you know, the net project that they were creating to put, to put sleeping nets over beds and stuff to save children's lives and everything. And he gets done with the opening stats of all the people that are dying and everything like that. And he says, now the good news is the mosquitoes I released don't have malaria, (laughs) but you, you want to, as you're telling this and people are watching these mosquitoes fly around, you bet they're listening to the talk. And so, we got about, oh man, I was, I kid you not, I'd been prepping for 
two or three months with a speaking coach and, you know, really working over because unlike most talks we give where we can be sort of off the cuff and everything, I only had eight minutes. I had eight minutes and I was, I knew it was being filmed. And so I had to almost script it to the word to keep it under eight minutes. Cause there was so much to say about brain science and stuff. So, um, I've got it scripted perfectly. And I kept saying to my wife, I can't, they're going to, they're going to fall asleep. I can't, I got to get them out of their seats. I have to get these, I have to get this crowd like pulled onto the stage with me the moment I walk on like a Bill Gates did, you know, I have to. And, sh- and so I'm, a, I'm like a week out and I'm sitting in the backyard and it just all of a sudden dawns on me. Why don't I yell at them? Why don't I go out and yell at the crowd or something? Because that'll get them. And then my wife and I start talking and suddenly it's, no, no, I'm going to yell at one of my sons. My son is going to wander out on stage in front of me and I'm going to come out and I'm going to unload on this kid because there won't be a person in that room who won't go, how dare he do that? And then they're going to want to watch. And, and, you know, the good thing is, is I wanted to do it because I wanted to show them that in no other arena would we think that was okay. And it was, I mean, when I screamed at him, you can't hear it on the video, but there's this gasp. I mean, the, the oxygen is sucked out of the room and these people are, I, I guarantee if the spotlights were in my eyes, I bet you I could have caught a couple people who wanted to come up there and knock me upside the head because I screamed at a kid, but we allow it in sports and we, Oh, it's okay. He's, he gets results. Oh, it's okay. That's what I pay him to do. Oh, you know? And so it was such a great opportunity to sort of get a hold of the audience from the start and keep them engaged, but also to show them, wow, this is totally unacceptable in any other arena. So why do we celebrate this in youth sports? Now, my son, the one that left sport and came back to it, was the one in the opening. And what's so funny is he's smirking the whole time. <laughs> so, one, you know, one person said, your son kind of killed it because he's smirking the whole time. <laughs> uh, it's, it, like, it, it caught me. And I was like, wow. I remember the first time. It was last year or something. I watched it. I'm like, that is just so true. But for some reason, if a coach yells at somebody because it's sport, it's okay. Whereas at school, if as a teacher, if, when I was teaching, if I yelled at a kid like, then the parents saw it, I would be in trouble at the workplace, in a marketplace, at a shopping center. It's not okay. So for you to do it on that scene, I think it really paints a picture that this is just not acceptable. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's, it's amazing because I'm with you too. I was a kindergarten teacher for a while. I couldn't, I could never fathom screaming at a kindergarten kid, especially yeah. like you said, with parents seeing it. So, it, and, and it's, it's this belief that we have to be old school and it's how we get results. And and I always point people back to when they say, oh, I'm old school and that's how we get results. And my coach did it with me and I turned out just fine. I had one guy <laughs> say it and I said, you just screamed at a group of nine-year-old girls and called them donkeys. Do you really think you turned out okay? Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> you can step back here. <laughs> What if and I you know as I and then my next one was you have a, a four year old daughter. What if somebody screamed at your daughter that way? And he said, "I punch him in the face." I said, "How many parents do you think on that far sideline want to punch you in the face right <laughs> don't go now?" With it. And he's like, "They don't. They pay me for this." I'm like, "Oh, but you know, it's it's when people bring up old school, I always have to point back to John Wooden. You're old school. That's great. So did John Wooden ever do that? Because I. I think he got pretty good results too, if I recall. I mean, I, I, I think he was a pretty darn good basketball coach and won like nine or 10 NCAA championships, right? And produced some of the greatest basketball players of all time. Yet he never belittled or berated his athletes. As a matter of fact, he said the one word that made his coaching so great was love. So, yeah. so I always point them to that old school example, you know, and it's like, 
you, you can't beat it or the New Zealand All Blacks. You know, I know, I know it's, it's a neighbor and it's a competitor, but, <laughs> yeah, but that's fine. Lo, you know, love and vulnerability uh, are, are in, in this, this joy of the culture are, are embedded in there. I mean, that's, they, that's, you know, nobody would ever call them snowflakes. And yet this is a group of guys that are encouraged to say, I'm not having a good day. I need to talk to somebody about this, you know? So that's, that's, you know, if they're doing that and their coaches have figured out that screaming at them during performance just causes the brain to shut down, then we should definitely be doing it with eight-year-old kids. Yeah, we should stop screaming at them. So, so true, mate. So true. And I, I know, Reid, that uh, watching the All Blacks and just the philosophy and the routines they have about, you know, cleaning up after themselves. And there's so many good messages in there. And I, and I love that, you know, the vulnerability is okay. And I think uh, the more that we see role models doing that, that hopefully it'll filter down into grassroots and junior coaches. Now, the one thing that obviously I love the stay TED talk, but the simple four words that a coach, you know, should say after you play or, or before you play is, and I believe in you. Now, just that is so powerful, but so simple, Reid. It is. And, and I, and you, like you saw in my TED talk, I learned that from another coach who was younger than me. And it was such a valuable lesson because it just, you could see how it just transformed this kid physically when he said, I believe in you. And it's you read about Pep. I just saw an article that was put out about Pep and Pep talking about somebody said the first time they ever met Pep that he sat them down and said, I, I believe you could be one of the, the best players ever if you put your heart and soul into it. And that player said, how empowering was that to have somebody say that? And, and does it cost me anything as a coach to tell a kid I believe in them? Do I do I lose a piece of me or anything? Do I do I lose fame or do I lose fortune or do I lose? I mean, no, it costs us nothing to build, to whisper into somebody's soul that you believe in them. But what kind of gain is it for that kid? Yeah, it's, um, it's so powerful. And I know, I think sometimes we, we forget that sometimes the simplest actions and gestures are the ones that have the biggest results. And by just those four simple words that parents can say to kids, coaches, teachers, role models, mentors, anybody, I believe in you. And you can even say that in the workplace or wherever. It's so powerful and so simple. So hopefully people can take that away, and particularly uh, when they watch your TED Talk as well, Reid, because it's awesome. Now, one thing I'm really enjoying about not only our chat today, but everything you do is the power of storytelling. Now, how important is storytelling in coaching and for everything you do? Well, storytelling is really the, the basis for everything I do. I wrap everything I do in story, and I do it for, for, for a couple reasons. One, because it's more accessible for people. When I tell stories about my own career or somebody else, it tells people it's okay that it's happened to them. It's okay to feel the way they feel. In other words, you get a group of people in a room and everybody's sitting there thinking, am I the only one that's struggling with my kids at practice? Am I the only one that's ever screamed at a kid and felt horrible about it? Am I the, you know, and then you tell a story. Especially when I like tell a story about me asking my son, did you score and how I just, you know, emotionally yeah. for a while was just beating my poor kid. And it's like the, 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 the whole room takes this sigh of relief like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. This guy's done it too. Two, it gives us a foundation, a visualization of it, you know, bringing – it brings to life the stats we want to discuss and the, the resolutions we want to discuss and the science. Telling stories brings that to life for, for people and, and it's more indelible on their, their, their memory than if I just gave them the stats and gave them the solution is to wrap it in story. And then the other big reason I, I do story is because it's just more engaging for people. And so as a coach – if you are couching things in story with children, they're going to remember it more. 
and and it's right back to that book, Talk Like Ted, and other things. The the brain act the brains of people will actually sync up as you look them in the eyes and you begin to tell a story that has emotional content to it. So if you draw on the heartstrings, the emotions of your athletes, if you're giving stories, motivational stories to them, or if you're you're telling stories about your life, you're connecting with your athletes. And once they've connect, they're syncing. And so emotionally they're actually more ready to learn and, and it's a long-term memory. So the things I'm teaching are couched in these memories. And it's like for you, for anybody, for me, when I smell fresh cut grass, I am immediately transported to my playing days. I am immediately transported to the tournament fields, hundreds of teams, the smell of fresh cut grass, the, the dew is light on the grass and it's, it's on my shoes and I'm ready to play a game and I can feel the heart palpitations at the first touch of the ball as that first game of the tournament weekend kicks off. And so when you tell stories to kids, what you're doing is you're attaching emotions, which then attaches all these other senses to it, and they remember it more easily. So it doesn't have to be big stories, but if you couch what you're teaching to your athletes in story, it's more likely that they'll understand how to apply it in context, they'll connect with you better, and they're going to remember it longer. Yeah, I, and I think that's a big thing. And not only that, they're going to be super engaged. So is that storytelling obviously builds engagement, it builds fun, it builds excitement, and, and not only that, they'll remember what you're talking about, Reid, but what else does engagement look like to you? If you, if I could said, uh, give you a room and these students are super engaged or these kids are super engaged, what does that look like? They are active. Believe it or not, they are active. Uh, when I was teaching kindergarten, I can remember my principal coming in and flipping out because we were doing station learning because I had 25 kids who were four, five, six years old, and they were uh, unbelievably energetic, and we had no recess. So what's that going to do for kids for four hours sitting in chairs? Oh, my gosh. That's, <laughs> are you kidding me? And now the research shows that if they get th 20 to 30 minutes of, of physical activity, the brain is actually more prepared, sh shown on functional MR, to learn. So th we actually want them to move before we teach them difficult subjects. So I had them in stations, and they were learning. They were skip counting, and they were adding, and they were subtracting, and they were, but they were doing it by hopping and skipping and jumping and, and building things. And so I had like three or four math stations and a reading station, and they had 10, 15 minutes at each, and I'd blow the whistle or, you know, I, I whistle with my tongue and teeth, but I'd whistle and they'd move to the next station. And she comes in and it's, she called it chaos. And I said, <laughs> it is chaos. And then within this chaos, they're, they're learning. I was like, you know, chaos is the catalyst here. And so that's what it looks like is when you see smiles on their faces and you see them trying to things and just because they're not sitting still and looking me in the eyes doesn't mean they're not engaged because I want them to look me in the eyes when I'm giving them a 30 second vignette, like here's the picture. I'm going to draw it for you. Now you go draw it yourselves. But once they're, once they're in a training session, if they are active and they are attempting the things that we've discussed or they're trying to expand on the things that we've discussed and solve the puzzles and interact with the world around them, then that's engaged. The kids that are standing, staring off into space, I may be talking to them, but they're not engaged if they're standing there staring off into space. I'd rather them be moving. Yeah, and that, that's so true. I'm a big believer in that uh, when you're moving and learning at the same time, I call it, that's when the magic happens, right? Because 
that's when we remember things. That's when we're actually having fun, not when kids are just standing and directing to them. And I, I think one of the things I see these days with coaching, and particularly at grassroots where you might have witches hats or cones and, you know, there might be four deep waiting for their turn to get the ball, all right? Now, what are what are some areas that just coaches that I'm a big believer in not having lines that because in a game of soccer, football, AFL, rugby, anything like that, there's no lines, there's no witches hats out on the ground to wait your turn. So what are some of the areas that you reckon just coaches could really make a little adjustment to fix those issues? Well, yeah, you, you've got to eliminate the lines. You, you, it's okay for them to have rest moments. It's okay for them to, you know, have that downtime for a moment because they use that to debrief in their own brains and to do some, you know, self awareness and then to to recoup physically maybe and get a breath. But when you have these big long lines where they're just waiting for their one chance to dribble three times and shoot, and then they got to wait ten more minutes to dribble three times and shoot. It's just too much. So small-sided games were always really good, but I always had to – you always want to make a – I shouldn't say – I. this was my opinion, and, and coaches are going to have different ones. I wanted to always have the small-sided games mimic the greater game. They had to feel the context of it. It's sort of like teaching pieces of math. It's got to link to the larger equation sometime down the road. And so or you're teaching – you know, you're reading a sentence or a paragraph within a book. Well, there's still a plot line in there, and it has to – you know, that, that paragraph has to make sense to the greater plot of the book. Same thing with our games with our kids put them in games but the games have to be somewhat relevant to the greater game itself so that and then i always advance it a lot of small sided games a lot of touches that when they're in their rest moments still get them doing something like is there something they can do that's not a part of the exercise you're working on but still links to it or at least gets them touches or keeps them active you know if, I, if i'm rotating teams my team that's out may be juggling or they may be taking stats you know for 30 seconds before they're back in of what's happening out there and then before they run in it's like how many passes were completed 15 all right go you know something like that so they're still active active Activating the brain and then the next thing is to, to, to evolve that into okay so we did this small-sided game and our goal was to to widen out the field and create as much space as possible because space equals time in sports and so the more space I have the more time I have when I receive the ball now we're gonna link it to a larger game we're gonna play a full-sided game and here's what it's gonna look like and so there was always that linking the small-sided to the bigger game itself so the kids could solve the puzzle the other big one is this keeping the chatter down I was always so I struggled with this as you can tell I like to talk so so I struggled with this but it was I I learned at one point finally that bring them in give them a quick point get them back out I actually scripted my practices by the end I wrote just as you would have a practice training session with everything you wanted to work on and the skills you wanted to hit and the learning objectives I also had written down the keywords I wanted to use and so it kept me brief it's like I'm going to go in there and these are the keywords because these are the words they're going to remember find feet find feet find feet it's alliterative it's easy to remember it means look for the person whose both feet you can see because you can pass the ball if you can see both feet because that means they're not covered up by a defender right so it was like I'd go into training and I and those were the what I would pepper in if I was going to pull them in it was 30 seconds of Take a look. What do you see? What, how, can we, how can we solve this? What does it look like? All right, go. And then the rest of the time, it's talking to them while they're training. And it's, it's that Twitter talk. It's that 140-character coaching where if I'm going to say something, I'm going to say it for the benefit of the whole group because they're all playing and engaging. I don't want to drag them away from it. So I'm just going to put something out there like you do on Twitter, and everybody can read it and see it. When I have meaningful conversations, I might sidle up to one athlete and say, hey, how you doing? 
what happened there? What do you think would be differently? And that's the other big key is I started asking a lot more questions. Stu Armstrong the other day took it to a whole new level and said that what he started doing was not – he'd freeze them, take a picture, and then he'd say, I want you to solve this, but I want you to solve it while you play and then come back to me and tell me how you solved it. Go. And yeah. so he'd get them back into playing, and they would play to solve this this question he'd asked them. I'm like, that's that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, then not only are they playing, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking about the solution to come back when you finish off. Yeah. So there's there's a couple things here that took me forever to learn. One is that we are not the givers of answers. Our job is not to pour into these empty vessels that are thirsting for our knowledge. That's just not what it is. The root word for education is educare, which is, and I learned this from Jane Nelson, my mentor, who we, we just wrote these positive discipline tools for coaches cards. Educare means to draw forth. My job is like Socrates was. My job is to draw forth the knowledge they have and have them experience it because when you experience it, you learn it better. And so I'm not supposed to stand there and dump knowledge on them. I'm supposed to draw what they know out of them so they experience it and they create their own knowledge about the game from their perspective with their experience and their skill sets. My skill set is vastly different from an eight-year-old's. So it's no good for me to dump my knowledge into that kid. I need that kid to have knowledge based around his or her own perspective and skill set. And, and the other piece of the puzzle um, was is that, oh my gosh, I totally brain cramped on the, uh, the other side of that. Uh, come back to it because I'll remember it in a little bit. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I'm getting so, old. No, no, mate. But you, you're on fire. And that's what you are. So, it really, does that sort of come back to listening? I suppose. Um, and I'm sure when you started out coaching as a 16 year old, that um, you weren't just doing Twitter 140 character at a time speeches. But um, not only as you get more experience, you learn, but you also learn that talking less is sometimes better, and listening is even more powerful. Yeah, and actually, that was the second piece. <laughs> so I can all the so way over you. here. I can read you, read. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you suddenly realize that if if you're drawing knowledge out of them, that means that you have to watch and listen and learn from them, and it helps guide their own training. So I'm not pouring knowledge into them anymore. My job is to teach them to be problem solvers and to to be able to create problem solvers. You've got to listen to them, yeah. right? So I've got to understand, you know, you Dale. This is really what, what your why is. This is what gets you amped and engaged. And these are the skills you bring to the table. And this is how you see the game because each child sees the game differently. And so I've got to coach you, and you know this being an educator, differentiation. I've got to coach you differently than I would uh, Gunny because you approach the game differently and bring a different skill set to the table. But I don't learn that unless I'm listening. And I'm talking about listening with your eyes, listening with your ears, you know, using everything you can to really get an understanding of players. And a big one is that whole questioning thing. You do something and you make a mistake. And I immediately want to say, no, 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 Dale, you did that wrong. Use your right foot and do this. That's great. But you didn't, you didn't learn to solve that on your own. You didn't learn to be analytical about what happened. I just gave you the answer. You're yep. not going to remember. It's like, it's like regurgitating test answers from a cheat sheet. <laughs> yep. What if I stopped you and said, what do you, why did you do that? You know, and not, not defensively, not, not like, but hey, what, were you, what, was in you, what was going through your mind when you, I was thinking this? Oh, I didn't even see that. That's a good observation. Well, how come it didn't quite work? Well, this, this, and this. Well, what could you do differently next time? I could try this. No, you're not going to try it. Go do it, you know, and let you let you go. But I don't learn that unless I listen to your answers first and I listen to you as a person. Yeah. 
So, so true, Reid, and, and I think one of the, I think that's a skill that you learn as you get on, and obviously 30 years of coaching, being an educator, your double degrees, everything you're doing that has probably led you now to where you're at, and this awesome resource you've just created, Realm for Coaches. Now, I'm excited talking to you because not only have you spoke to us about obviously building relationships, engagement, what it looks like, listening, the power of coaching, differentiating, working as a team with obviously the team you're coaching, but the parents, the supporters, everything like that. And, and you've put it into this one epic resource. Do you want to explain a little bit about this for us? Yes. And I'll start with this. The reason... I have ha- I have I feel like I have had such a wonderful journey is because I had amazing mentors along the way. My dad who was a coach when I was growing up. My coach Paul Rockwood who got me in at age 16 for instance. Um, Jane Nelson who's currently my mentor who's been my mentor for the last 4 or 5 years. Uh, and there's so many others. So many other mentors that I've had over the years. Those mentors really made a difference because if we're going to say that we're about athlete development, then we also have to be about coach development. Because we can't be in a vacuum and operate in a vacuum as coaches and coach our athletes year in, year out from what we know in a a vacuum. We've got to grow alongside them. And the mentors really made a difference. And so for me, that's where Realm came about was I realized that what are we doing as coaches to grow? I mean it's great that we've got Twitter and all that. But a lot of times it's just sharing technical stuff. But the technical stuff is only as good as the software. The hardware of my computer only functions as well as the software. And the software is all those other pieces of the puzzle. So as a coach, what am I doing to build my skill set beyond the game itself so that I'm a much better coach creating a much better learning environment? And so I started reaching out to people and and learning from them and asking them, what about this? Amanda Visick, what about fun maps? Teach me about fun maps. You know, and Jane Nelson, teach me about positive discipline. And it just started growing from there. And so what it is, I created Realm, which stands for resources, expertise, accountability, learning, and mastery. And the idea is, and I ask most coaches, or I'm working with uh, U.S. Sailing right now, and we're, we're finalizing how we're going to roll out Realm basically to uh, it's their new high-performance centers that they're launching, and then hopefully all the way through. And I just got off the phone with John Kessel from USA Volleyball the other day. He said, Reed, we got to get this to the grassroots. I said, that's my goal. The idea is that you ask almost anybody, when was the last time you grabbed an expert who you knew brought something to the table? Remember we talked about looking at your parents and what skills do they bring that they can help you with, what people around you bring a skill you don't have. Because when they work with you, you learn that skill by nature. So looking at when was the last time as a coach – you ask somebody to come to your training session, to watch your training session, and maybe watch you in a game, and then take you for coffee and sit for an hour and talk to you, not about the technical, not about the what, but about the how and the why of the art and science of coaching to help you be better. Because we do it in education. We do it in, in engineering. We do it in the medical industry. We do it – pilots do it and armed forces do it. Everybody else has this feedback loop where they're constantly being ev- evaluated and then given opportunities to develop and grow. And every company you go to work for typically has that long-term development plan. Well, Realm is a long-term coach's development plan. When was the last time you asked somebody to come and do that? And usually it's never. Well, what if you could video yourself coaching and then you and I would, you would look at yourself and watch yourself and then I would watch you and we'd take notes on our own and then you and I would sit down together for an hour and debrief. And from that, we would build a learning program around what exactly you want to grow and be better at and what you need and continue to grow the things that you're very good at. We do it for athletes. Why aren't we doing it for our coaches? 
And, and so, so that's yeah. and so, how I was born. Sorry, Reed, to cut you off. It's, it is so powerful. And I know, particularly as teachers, that we peer teach all the time in the workplace. You know, people observe, you follow each other, you do all these things. But why hasn't this been around before? And, and how long have you been thinking about doing this? Because it's something that coaching needs. I've been thinking about it for years it's, it's while I was coaching because I was constantly doing that. I was constantly saying, come watch me train and tell me what I'm doing wrong. And, you know, and, and of course, I watch back videos now of my workshops or presentations or even coaching sessions. And I and I evaluate myself and I realize, man, it would be great to have an expert actually say to me. And so what was really cool was I was with Ontario Volleyball and we were selecting the coaches for their upcoming Canada games. And, of course, he says, I know you don't know a whole lot about volleyball, and that's what's beautiful. I, I don't want you to evaluate the coaches based on volleyball. I want you to evaluate them both based on the art and science of coaching. So, okay. So we evaluated them via video. And one of the coaches said, I've never had in 25 years somebody talk to me about where my body position was and how I, half the athletes were behind me when I was talking, what my facial expressions were like, what, what, the, you know, what the session flow looked like, all these pieces of the puzzle. And he said, it, you know, it really changed the way I approach coaching when I realized that these little things cause a breakdown in the bridge between what I'm teaching and what they're learning. And it's like, I may think I had the greatest session ever, but if only half my athletes heard it because I had my back to half of them most of the time, then the learning, the, the, the bridge between teaching and learning was completely obliterated. And so that's really where it, it sort of grew out was a couple months back. But, you know, I've been thinking about it my whole career, like what I need mentors. Yeah. And this is what this is, 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 uh, I'll be the mentor for, um, you know, large groups of coaches. And the great thing is, is we're going to create a mastermind around it because I'm not just a mentor. We mentor each other. And it's like when I do workshops and I get 15 coaches in a room, boy, the magic starts flying. Like I said, chaos is the catalyst, man, get them all talking. And that's where the magic lies in there. And so, so we'll do that. We'll do video analysis. We'll do one-on-one mentorship with me, distance-based, which is great because I can I can reach as many coaches as possible, and they don't have to leave their house. They just need an internet connection with me. And then we'll do these masterminds where I'll get them in cohorts of ten or twelve, and they'll they, we'll meet also monthly as a cohort where we'll share with each other our accountability and best best practices and learning and all that. And then, of course, as it grows, what I'm doing is bringing in guest experts because. Six of my coaches in my cohort had communication things they wanted to work on. So I bring in an expert on communication. We do a webinar, and now they've got this access to this expert. And then I'll do a course on communication for them and drop it in the back. And so it's, I'm building their long-term development coaching plans as they go so that they can just pick and choose out of the library the things they need to make themselves better. Wow, and that, that's so powerful. Not only the one thing I love about masterminds, I know I'm in a couple of them, that you link up with like-minded people and you help each other grow. And I can tell exactly that's what Realm's about. So, um, guys, I'll have links for that in the show notes. So if you go to energetic.education forward slash podcast, this is with Coach Reed Mulby, and you'll be able to go on there, click on there, and go through the website because I've gone through it and it's it's really, really top-notch. And as a coach, um, I'd highly recommend it. So, Reed, I've just got a few extra questions. I'm wearing your time, mate. I know how busy you are, but is there is there a question you wish, wish people asked you more? Um, I know, obviously, you get the generic ones all the time, but around coaching, is there something that you wish people would ask you more? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's uh, we always ask about the books and stuff like that, but I wish I wish people would would ask anybody. What other industries do you learn from? That's, that's or what cool. other sports do you learn from? Yeah, because it's you know we all want to talk about the coaching books and everything, but we have so much to learn from other education. We have so much to learn from business. We have so much. You know, my my kids are in Civil Air Patrol, which is an auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force, so it's like 
Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts for for the Air Force, you know, and and so they're learning aerospace and they're learning character development and they're, and I'm going to these meetings and I, I I'm I'm now the character develop one of the character development officers for our our squadron so I'm teaching this and I'm learning so much and I'm like oh my gosh I never thought of just looking at something like that and saying what can I learn what can I learn from scouts what can what can you learn from you know engineering and if people ask that question more, because everybody has a day job. And so if everybody asked those people, those coaches, what their day job was and what they bring to the table from that, I really think we'd expand the profession of coaching. To be real professionals, we've got to step out of the echo chamber and start learning from those other sciences and other professions. Wow. That, that is probably – I ask that question every now and then, Reid, and that is so powerful because I think we do get caught up – in coaching books or we do get up in whatever field you're listening to or you're in it's very easy to get just go straight to the the number one source instead of probably looking left little left field and it's probably similar as when we're kids that we try as many sports as we can because we develop different skills in all of them that help us in whatever one we choose or wherever we go in life and that's sort of what you're trying to say yeah, it is. I mean, it's like you look at my bookshelf and there's a few there's coaching books in there. But like I just I, I'm reading a book right now called Brain Briefs and it's answers to the most pressing questions about your brain. And it's like, what are you going to learn about that? Well, believe it or not, there's a whole heck of a lot of stuff we can learn about that will help us as coaches if we understand how the human brain processes. <laughs> oh, de- definitely. And not only that, you'd be able to obviously have better relationships, but everything in your life because it all comes down to the decisions we make. Exactly. And like, you know, Talk Like Ted has been one of the greatest coaching books I ever read. And it had nothing to do with coaching. It was about how to give a great TED talk. And yet it completely changed the way I interacted with my athletes on the field. <laughs> because uh, I suppose with that and, and what I'm guessing from the Talk Like Ted book is that everything is – I suppose you're always not acting but everything's a performance. And coaching is one of the biggest performances you ever do. So you sort of need a script it like you were saying. And um, I suppose with that TED Talk, you've only got eight minutes, whereas with coaching, you probably allow a little bit more. But if you streamline that um, and made that performance so much better, your performance of what you're delivering would even like go to another level, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, what you know, what if you were able to deeply engage your kids just like, you know, in a TED Talk where you just the moment they step on your field with you, you have them fully engaged in listening and learning. And then what if you were able to use just the right words every time so that when you taught something, you know it was being learned, that it was being engraved, that it was being owned. And and what if you ignited their brains in a way that they just they just you know, they the chaos created all this creativity and all of this learning in there. What would that feel like? And that's what TED Talks do. And it's like, so why aren't we structuring our training sessions in a way that we are just igniting learning in the brain first before it ever reaches the rest of the body it, that, that's so true because i i know when i'm coaching or i see other coach i think sometimes we just talk because we think we need to talk and we talk longer because we can't get our point across so like you just said there you streamline it you have a script and you go for it you, you're going to have engagement through the roof because there's no downtime and you know exactly the message you're bringing across oh yeah and, and it's like once you've scripted it, it's so much – you're not wasting that time talking. For instance, if you're trying to teach a complex skill or something that kids just can't get, you'll talk and talk and talk and talk and talk until you figure it out. But if you script it ahead of time and look to analogies, for instance, so much easier. I saw a guy today put out an analogy that he says when he talks to his uh, goalies about scooping the ball up as it's rolling to him on the ground, he talks to him about the scoop on the end of a, like a tractor or you know a forklift type thing where it, it scoops under and scoops the dirt up. 
that's all you need to say. Hey, yeah. here's how you do it. Instead of going, put your hand <laughs> under and do this and take a step here and anything, just tell your goalie, scoop it like a tractor scoops dirt and boom. Then you let them do it and you've only wasted five seconds of their lives. And they, but they're <laughs> learning and they're doing it. <laughs> and they actually understand it too because everyone knows how they get the dirt. They go low, they go hard and they get it. It's probably exactly the same as a goalie. You know? I love that. And I think people that are listening, less is more. And I think that's the big thing with scripting it, um, with using analogies, stories, like you've mentioned today, Reid, it is so powerful. Now, I've got two questions I always finish off with. And one of them, Reid, is if you could look back to 18-year-old Reid when you were still obviously playing soccer, you were coaching, you were doing all these things, but you were still quite young. Now, with obviously 30 years coaching experience and everything else you've got, you've got a father, you're, you're a, you've got a lovely wife, you've done all these things. What would that one bit of advice that you could give 18-year-old Reid that you've learned along the way that would help you as an 18-year-old? Stop being so negative stop listening to the voice in your head and just enjoy the ride i look back and for so much of my career as a player and coach i just i let that voice in my head just really just beat up on me and i just always saw the the i always saw the negativity instead of just now it's like i just i just wish as an 18 year old i would have just soaked it up and enjoyed the ride because i probably would have learned even more along the way if i'd have just it's quieted the voices and taken more notes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great advice too because I think we do, you know, the simple practice of gratitude or things like that of just focusing on the positives um, because normally you can have a really good day but one thing will weigh you down. So that is great advice and I'm sure anybody could uh, take that on board. And, and finally there, Reid, what legacy, when it's all said and done, I know you've got a long time to go yet, mate, but what legacy do you want to leave on the world? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. I've never actually thought about the precise legacy, but I always talk about the echoes I'll never hear. I hope that something that I've said or done is repeated by one person. And that one person, one of the people that person does it with is repeated by another and by another that a hundred years from now, I'm no longer on this planet. And yet somebody is doing or saying something that completely changes a life that teaches a child that they have their own excellence, that it is not a bar that's set by the world outside of them, that it is fully capable within them to achieve and that they can wake up every day and chase that excellence unbridled. Wow. That'd be my legacy. Wow, that would, that, that would be my legacy. Like a like a throwing a stone in the in the into a pond and seeing the ripple effect, mate. You want that ripple effect to keep going forever and ever. And I can guarantee people listening to this podcast, it, there's so much in it today, mate. That I'm blown away. So if people are listening, where can we contact you? What's the best? What's your socials? I'll obviously have the website. Where can we contact Reed and just say, mate, I've loved today. Uh, if you love today, I'm going to learn from you. That's the goal because we're all collaborating. Like I said, get as many people as you can around you and you just you help each other and you take each other's skills. So find me, uh, coach underscore read on Twitter. Also coach underscore read on Instagram. Uh, if you go to coachread.com and read is spelled R-E-E-D, uh, you'll find me on, on coachread.com. And those are probably the easiest places. I'm getting ready to revamp Coach Reed, so it'll send you to like our Think Tank 2019, and it'll send you to Coach's Realm and all of that. But as you know, Dale, I'm I try to be as responsive as possible. So if you tweet at me or some or, or message me, I, I I tend to respond because 
you know, everybody's an opportunity for us to learn. Well, Reid, mate, you are one of the most responsive people. I'll I'll just say that uh, I reached out to you yesterday and uh, within about three minutes, we'd already locked in a time. We had an interview ready to go and here we are today. And, um, mate, I just want to really thank you for... uh, not only your time today, but just the, the quality insight that you've provided from your coaching experiences and then from others and just the way not only we can be better coaches, but probably better people in everything we do and, and learn from each other and form relationships, teams and bonds. So not only are we all happy, but we're lifelong learners. So Reid, thank you so much for your time today, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Dale, it's, it's, it's been all my pleasure and I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you.